Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Real Talk. It's Lucas here, and I hope that today's episode informs and inspires you to have your own real conversations. As always, today's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Trivan, maker of trucks, trailers, and enclosure buildings tailored to your needs. Be sure to check them out at trivan.com. A huge thanks to them for sponsoring the show and making it possible. One other quick note before we get into today's episode is that if you are willing and able, if you could leave a review, preferably a five-star one, on any of the podcast networks or platforms that allow for it, such as Spotify or Apple Podcasts, that will be much appreciated as it helps get the word out there and lets people know what we're all about. So with that in mind, on to the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Talk podcast. Um, I'm privileged to do an episode that I've been pretty excited to do for a while. Um, I think I've been promising our listeners that we were going to do this episode uh, for quite some time. So we're finally touching on the Lord's Supper. Um, Just for a background, um, I've been kind of doing episodes here and there on um, the marks of the true church. And so this is kind of slots under the sacraments. And um, we've been thinking about doing an episode on Lord's Supper for a while. And we've been, uh, it's it's one of those things that's pretty heavy and there's a lot of like different uh, aspects going on in the churches. So um, yeah, excited to welcome Dr. Guy Waters uh, from the uh, theological, Reformed Theological Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. So appreciate you joining us. Um, Dr. Waters is the uh, junior professor of New Testament um, with a particular interest, takes a particular interest in the letters of Paul. Um, so teaches the New Testament um, at the Theological Seminary there in Jackson. Um, got his PhD from Duke University, and uh, yeah, many many publications uh, listed on on the website there at the Reformed Theological Seminary. Um, would encourage people to go uh, uh, before we begin. Encourage people to go and read read a whole bunch of uh, good material that you've written and edited and and uh, procured. So. Um, yeah, I think I, uh, just welcome you to the show and uh, appreciate your time. And, uh, if you can, uh, maybe introduce yourself a little bit, your background and, uh, give people an idea how you ended up where you are. Sure. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's a treat to be with you. So as, as you mentioned, I serve at Reformed Theological Seminary at the Jackson campus, which was our founding original campus. Uh, I've been on faculty since 2007, so this is, what, my 17th year. And previously, I was on faculty at Bellhaven College, now University, a Christian college, also in Jackson, in their Biblical Studies Department. I was there for five years. Uh, I'm, in addition to being a, a professor, I'm a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, so I'm ordained. i fill pulpits, administer the sacraments, uh, serve um, on committees of presbytery and general assembly, um, and involve in the life of the local church. And so very much enjoy being able to straddle uh, both the classroom and the church. And I'm just very grateful to be doing what uh, I'm privileged to do. I oh, appreciate you taking on the podcast world. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> it's something that we uh, we enjoy bringing to people. So um, yeah, looking forward to the wisdom that you've got uh, for us on this subject today. So 
Um, yeah, I guess you were recommended to us uh, from several people, and you've written several books uh, about Lord's Supper or around Lord's Supper, edited. I actually picked up a couple of them. Um, so I, I'm sure we'll we'll touch on the topics, uh, one on Pado communion and uh, things like that. So I've read read a bit of your work and seen you on several videos here and there. So um, yeah, hopefully this is uh, informative for people and and uh, gives people a good picture of the Reformed doctrine of Lord's Supper. So I guess just to start off, um, maybe we should just touch on what what is the Lord's Supper to Reformed Christians, and um, maybe go into a bit of the history where where um, some of the other uh, ideas or um, you know av- like people have taken that Luther and Zwingli and where um, these kind of have landed in in today's world. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, well, it's I think it's unfortunate that many Christians approach the subject of the Lord's Supper with with some trepidation because it's been a topic of such controversy in the church, particularly in the last 500 years or so. And, you know, I think the first thing we want to recognize is that while there are important issues that have to be sorted through, um, this is not something that God gave us just to argue about. The Lord's Supper is what we call a means of grace, and the way uh, Reformed folk understand the means of grace, this is an instrument, like the preaching of the Word, like baptism, that God is pleased to use, and when the Holy Spirit so blesses that instrument in the life of a person, then that person receives grace. And so we want to recognize that the Lord's Supper is given as a means, as an instrument to build up God's people in grace in Christ. And so for that reason, it's something every Christian ought to have interest in because it's part of our sanctification. It's part of the the pattern by which God would have us to grow as believers in Christ. So I think approaching it from that framework, we're not going to be, of course, um, ignorant or unconcerned with the controversies, but we want to come into this from the vantage point of what do I need to know from Scripture about the Lord's Supper that will help me to grow as a Christian? Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good a good starting point. Like, yeah, I, I think a lot of times we either take it for granted, or especially growing up in the church, or uh, yeah, we we get tied up in that controversy. So, um, I guess yeah, laying that laying that groundwork. Um, that's kind of what we're trying to we're trying to do with this episode too. So, inform people on uh, even things just to think about around it that um, around the sacrament of Lord's Supper that maybe you haven't thought about or or you know probably should be considered on a, you know, weekly, monthly basis. Um, yeah. So in terms of, uh, the history, uh, why does the reformed church land, um, more along the lines of Kelvin than Luther and, and Zwingli and those sorts, um, maybe touch on the reformation and, and that kind of thing. Um, right. Well, I think, uh, of course the reformation is responding to the way the late medieval church, uh, which uh, after the Council of Trent uh, became the Roman Catholic Church, understood the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. 
And I think we we recognize coming into this that this is something that we would have to sort through in any case, even had there been no controversy in the church's history, because the familiar words of institution, Jesus takes a piece of bread in the upper room and says, this is my body. He takes a cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. What does that mean? And so that has sparked the discussion, even controversy in the course of the church's history. Now, uh, where the medievals landed was a position that's come to be known as transubstantiation, uh, which is where the the priest, <clears throat> acting in accordance with the intention of the church, um, effectively uh, in uh, administering um, the mass, uh, will <clears throat> oversee the uh, transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, so that even though they appear um, to the naked eye as just bread and wine, for substance, they are the body and blood of Christ. And this is what is given to the communicant to digest, and in digesting, this is how grace is communicated. And the reformers reacted against that to a man. Now, of course, when you react against something, you've got to put something in its place. And the Lutheran tradition uh, is probably the most conservative in staying the closest to to where Rome is. And it's a very difficult position to sort through. We, We can talk about it. But the position of Calvin and Zwingli, um, the Reformed, was that Luther really didn't go far enough in articulating the biblical doctrine in distancing himself from the Roman Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. What, what Calvin insists is that in the Lord's Supper, the humanity of Jesus Christ is in no way present in the elements. So we're we're not talking about any kind of physical presence, bodily presence of Christ in the elements for the simple reason that the humanity of Jesus Christ is in heaven, exalted and at the right hand of the Father. Hmm. But the Reformed also insisted we're not saying at all that Christ is absent from the Lord's Supper. Uh, How can that be? Well, he is present by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we we speak of him as spiritually present. Then we we have another question, to whom is he present? Well, he's not present to all alike. He is present to the one who comes in the way of faith to receive Christ through the means of his appointment. So we're not saying that Christ is bodily present and he's bodily present in the same way to a believer as he is to an unbeliever. But we're not saying, on the other hand, that there's nothing going on in the Lord's Supper beyond my recollection of what Christ has done. It's it's not an empty ordinance in that sense. We are saying that Christ is present by the Spirit, and that he is present to the faith of the, the one who comes and receives worthily. That, that's the baseline reform view. 
And I think what it accomplishes is, most importantly, biblical fidelity. Secondly, it provides a, a cogent answer to Rome. Uh, but third, it doesn't so distance itself from Rome as some in the evangelical church have, that we end up with an ordinance where Christ is, in all senses of the term, effectively absent. Hmm. Interesting. So yeah, it's a very theological idea. I mean, even to wrap your head around it, I mean, it's hard to even figure out what the difference is. Um, I mean, I guess more pragmatically. Um, is that something that's still alive, this debate um, in, in the current day? Or is this something that was kind of sorted out? People have kind of landed where they do and um, we've kind of moved on. I mean, it's not something that your everyday lay people often discuss, I wouldn't imagine. No, uh, that would be rare. And I think what has happened is that, you know, since the, the 17th century or so, lines have pretty much formed within the church. Uh, each tradition is where it has been. And I think uh, a, a person who is not theologically trained, who wanders into a Roman Catholic setting, wanders into a Lutheran setting, they're going to get pretty much what those traditions have been teaching, uh, whether they're aware of it or not. And I think there's an importance in understanding what the Lord's Supper means to each of those traditions. Just to give an example, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is going to speak of the Roman Catholic Mass as idolatry. Well, that's a pretty serious accusation. I, I think it's an apt one, not one that we ought to be throwing around. But you have to understand what Rome is teaching before you can come to that kind of a conclusion. And so what that would mean is if, if you hold uh, to a Reformed understanding of the Lord's Supper, then you're not going to uh, receive uh, the Mass. You're not going to come and receive the host in, in a Roman Catholic Mass. You, As a matter of conscience, you couldn't do that. But you've got to understand a little bit about these discussions to get to that point. Right. Yeah. How... How important is that then? Like, in if even if the, the Lord's Supper or the uh, even if it looks the same, say in a Lutheran church or something like that, um, how important is it for people to understand that? Because um, yeah, like you said, like the papal mass also in our um, our Heidelberg Catechism calls it a, a, a cursed idolatry, and so I don't know if, if the everyday person would take it serious enough. Um, it's, you know, it's possible. Um, uh, but how important is it then to really dissect the theology of the Lord's Supper as it's taught in your, in your local church and to, you know, ensure that it is, it is reformed. Um, and instead of just, you know, maybe going, going to a Lord's Supper in say a Lutheran church or, or somewhere, uh, where they are taught, it is taught a little different, um, or this idea without really realizing or or thinking about that? Well, I think it, it comes back to the question you know, we started, what is the Lord's Supper for? Well, the Lord's Supper 
is for my growth as a Christian. And we don't believe that there's any kind of automatic transferal of grace in the ordinance, mm. the way that that Rome teaches, for instance, but to all intents and purposes. So what that means, if I'm going to get something out of it, I have to put something into it. And to start, I've got to understand what's going on. I'm not going to benefit from it if I'm just blithely ignorant of what's happening around me. You know, you don't get credit just for showing up. You have to, <laughs> uh, you have to understand what God's doing. You, you have in, to come with some degree of preparation. You, you have to seek what God has said He's offering, and then afterwards, you've, you've got to work to to benefit from what you hope you've received and all of this is going to require our engagement so even if we never set foot in a roman catholic setting or speak with a roman catholic friend or or we never visit a lutheran church i still think as reformed christians even if we're not officers in the church we need to understand what's going on in the lord's supper if we're going to benefit from it the way God tells us we can benefit from it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of, partly why I wanted to do this episode. I think it's something that I think about a fair bit and uh, we'll get to some of the issues that uh, as to maybe why um, the, the things that have been talked about in the reformed churches, um, maybe the more practical things or, or the things that maybe the lay people think about more often. Um but yeah, it always seems to come back to like, what do you really believe is is happening, and what do you really believe is is um, the significance of Lord's Supper, and yeah, how do you receive those benefits? So, um, yeah, could you expand a, a little bit more on what the what the Roman Catholic Church believes? And I guess we'll kind of bring baptism into it a little bit too. Like, they believe different things about baptism baptism as well, and more. The administration of grace is either automatic or, you know, it's kind of, you, yeah, like what you said, like you get points for just for showing up. Um, how How is that different? And then, and kind of where did that come from? Like from in the Roman Catholic Church more specifically? Well, you know, I think we always want to try to understand the view as sympathetically as possible. And because the sacraments are, means or instruments of grace, um, and because the scripture will speak of the sacraments um, in some some pretty arresting terms, I think Rome, through a misreading of scripture and through through a long gradual process, has landed in the place where grace is communicated more or less um, automatically. Uh, in the administration of the sacraments. The, the, the technical term that Rome uses, it's a Latin term, is ex opera operato, by the work having been worked. So when that priest is administering the sacrament according to the intention of the church, then it will give grace to the person who is not resisting that grace. And what Rome insists is that the sacraments are indispensable to salvation. You need baptism to be saved. And the remaining sacraments are, are going to fortify or repair 
uh, what what is uh, lost or gained in the course of the Christian life. But really, the Christian life is is to be understood sacramentally. That's a hard thing, I think, for us Protestants to get our minds around if we've never been in the Roman Catholic Church because we're so focused on the Word of God. Really, the heart of Roman Catholic worship and the heart of Roman Catholic piety is not the preaching of the Bible. It's the administration of the sacraments by the church through the priests. Mm. And that's what uh, piety and devotion is going to be built around in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, all of this didn't happen overnight. It, it really took several centuries. And again, we, we can understand that even if we don't approve the, the way they got there, but uh, that really comes out of Rome uh, misreading some statements in Scripture about the sacraments. And there are a whole other host of factors that we needn't get into, but that's a, a very simple drilled down accounting of it. Yeah, that's great. Is it? Do you find the same thing or similar things in the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Eastern churches, um, in terms of like the, um, I guess the weight that's placed on like sacramentalism? Yeah, I, I think in in that broad sense the the eastern churches would be sacramental very much the same way the western churches are sacramental and like rome the preached word would just not play the appreciable place that it does in protestant churches so that on that point i think there would be some similarities Okay. But they don't, but they are, are they still Protestant? Like the East, I'm thinking of Eastern Orthodox Church. Um, I don't know a ton about it, but I, I hear it's more, yeah, they're more sacramental in their mindset and like that they, they place more emphasis on the symbolism in these things. Um, I'm just curious if, is that also how they view the, like the administration of grace? Like, are they more, you know, do this sacrament, you're saved kind of? people or are they more Protestant in their view that way? No, I think their view of, of the transmission of grace would be closer to Rome than it would be to mm. Protestants. Now, just a qualification here, I've been speaking about the, the official teaching of the Roman right. Catholic Church. Now, the reality is the way this gets worked out at the parish level and the mindset of Roman Catholic parishioners is often a lot cruder and less nuanced than mm. this. And though that may not fairly reflect the teaching of Rome, that's boots on the ground piety. And so you have people who think, I can just live any way that I want, and then I'll go to Mass on Saturday or Sunday get it all taken care of, and then go about my life. Now, that's that's not the official teaching of Rome, but the reality is that's the way a lot of Roman Catholics conduct their lives. And um, you, you can understand how they come to that position. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, which is part of the reason why this conversation is kind of important for the Reformed world. Um you know, if you get in danger, if you're in danger of of going that way with your understanding of of the sacraments, like especially the Lord's Supper, I think is is one of those things that we 
you know, could, you know, we're in da- not in danger necessarily, but, but, you know, we're always in danger of um, drifting on our theology. Um, and yeah, if you get to a point where it does become an administration of grace, that's automatic or not well understood, I think then, yeah, you're, you're, you know, ch- things like church attendance and things become less important because, you know, I'll just make sure I'm there when the Lord's Supper is being done and we're all good. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's a really good uh, place to start. Like, um, there's some, there's some things that are, uh, yeah, more practical, more things, things that we think about more often, or, or I guess the, you know, the boots on the ground issues that you see. Um, so I thought we'd, we kind of roll through some of these and you can give, uh, some advice or, or yeah, some theological backing <laughs> for why, why reform people land where we do. So hmm. I think the first one, they kind of all blend together. So we may, we may just hit them, uh, randomly, hmm. but, um, the first one that comes to mind is, is fencing the table or, um, mm-hmm. guarding the table. Um, so we can leave Pado communion for now, cause we'll get into that, um, more specifically, but how do we think of, uh, fencing the table in terms of, um, a self like self-examination and, you know, who should come to the table? Right. So I, I think the first thing we want to say about the Lord's supper is that unlike the preaching of the word, which anyone can listen to, so an unbeliever can come and sit under the preaching of the word the same way that a believer does, but the Lord's Supper is a, a covenant sign. It's for the covenant community, so it's not for all alike. And for that reason, um, reform ministers have practice what is called what you've referred to as fencing the table it, it is a reminder that we <clears throat> need to extend as the church words of warning and words of invitation to the table there's certain people who ought not come to the table there's certain people whom Christ invites to the table and that's a reminder that um, we come to the table by invitation it's not the church's table, but it's Christ's table, and he admits whom he will, and we have to respect that. So that, that's why the practice of fencing the table is so important, because it clarifies whom Christ is invited to come, but it also warns those, if you ha- haven't been invited don't risk eating and drinking judgment unto yourselves. Stay away. You don't need the table. You need Christ. Come to him, and then next time around, you can come to his table. Hmm. Yeah, so a lot of this comes from 1 Corinthians 11. So I thought I would, I thought I would just read that from, uh, mm-hmm. from the scriptures so that we can frame this a little bit for the listeners. Um, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Where is it? Where it starts? Whoever therefore eats bread and drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why this is uh, Paul speaking to the Corinthians. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and have and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly. We would have, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But 
when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so, yeah, like, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've read that dozens of times, if not more. Um, but that's, I guess, the one of the key passages where we we get this teaching from very directly. And so what is, I guess I'm trying to understand, what is the relationship between the self-examination, discerning the body in terms of, uh, you know, a, a, a parishioner coming to the table um, uh, versus the the responsibility of church leadership to then fence the table. We think about it kind of, kind of two ways. Is that, um, is that a good way to think about it? Um, Mm -hmm. And then what are, what are kind of the responsibilities on both ends? Yeah. So I think what the, what the presiding minister does is to say, here are the sorts of folk that Christ invites to his table. You know, have you, uh, professed faith in Christ? Are you a member in good standing of a true church? Uh, have you received Christian baptism? And, you know, that's that's a way of saying, if look, if none of these is true of you, then don't come, because th- that that's going to be a, a baseline minimum for approaching the table. Now, <clears throat> As you've mentioned, there are responsibilities that are particularly the communicants. And really, the church doesn't assume responsibility for the person sitting in the pew. It's it's really up to me, if I'm going to come to the Lord's table, that, that I would come and that I would do it in a way that's honoring to Christ. So, you mentioned 1 Corinthians 11. You read it just a moment ago. There's there's the task of discerning the body. And that means that in faith and understanding, we have a sense of what's going on in the Lord's Supper, that, that we're coming to the table mindful of what we're doing, uh, that we, we're there to meet with Christ by faith, to commune with him, and that means we're going to come in repentance, we're going to come in faith, we're going to come in humility and reverence and love. That means that we're going to come not cherishing any sins, not harboring any grievance or bitterness against a brother or sister in Christ. So there's a level of preparation leading up to the Lord's Supper and carrying me into the moment of the Lord's Supper itself, spiritually. And we want to be careful that this is not that I'm doing something, and if I do that something, then I've earned my right to sit at the table. Nobody earns a right to sit at the table. Rather, these are spiritual exercises so that I would be ready to meet with Christ spiritually. Uh, So we, we need to cast away any sense of of merit or earning or anything like that. It's the Lord's Supper is not a reward for good behavior. It's a means of grace. It's a help to sinners who are saved by grace to grow in grace. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, you you mentioned um, this is a responsibility of, of the people who come to the table. Is there a responsibility for church leadership to... Um, I'm thinking more of like guests who join, um, 
things like that. So like in our in our tradition in uh, the Canadian Reformed churches, uh, we have like what's called a travel attestation. So um, if you travel to another church, you would bring an attestation from your uh, consistory at your local church where you attend, and that would attest to your good standing in order for you to then um, join in the Lord's Supper at like a, a church you're visiting. Um, is that is that um, is that something that we see more broadly in the Protestant um, churches or um, how is that how is that responsibility from the church leadership side viewed? Mm-hmm. Right. So you're you're raising a great point that the, the church does have a responsibility to safeguard the integrity of the table. And there have really been two practices. Well, there's really three, but but two are probably the most common within Reformed and Presbyterian circles. The one I've been describing, it's the majority report in my denomination, Presbyterian Church in America, uh, is would be called open communion. So what, what this would involve is the, the minister extending words of warning and invitation, and then people come and they're, they're accountable to God, according to conscience, for their eating or not. Now, there's a, a, another practice called close communion that would be akin to what you're describing, where only those who have, have provided some certification of church membership previously, or who've been examined by session or consistory, the elders of the church prior to the sacrament, only those are admitted to come to the Lord's table. And you know, within Reformed and Presbyterian circles, that has a, a long history, uh, but it, it would be, at least in my part of the world, uh, a minority report these days. But right. it is a, it's a good faith attempt to safeguard the integrity of the table. Um, it, the open communion is going to lay more of the burden on the conscience of the communicant, and close communion is going to involve more upfront effort on both parties prior to the observation of the supper. Right. Are, is there a biblical basis for either one of them, or or is it uh, just something that we've seen, um, kind of, yeah, like the divergence kind of uh, throughout throughout history? Well, in my judgment, I mean, the the scripture does not speak so clearly as to require one and preclude the other. I I think given what we read in 1 Corinthians 11, there has to be some proactive effort on the part of the church to safeguard the table. And I think both open and close communion would would be um, allowable applications of that. Now, a brother who holds close communion might disagree with me. And mm-hmm. might think my view is just way too loose, and you know we can have that discussion. But I'm I'm going to make the case that no um, position I've outlined does honor the standards of First Corinthians 11. Yeah, it, I don't know that it's something in our churches that we think about much. I think it's uh, one of those things that uh, I mean, yeah, probably we take for granted as just the lay people um, that mm-hmm. this is kind of where we've landed as a reformed church. So. I, yeah, it's just something that's that's good to consider. Um, something that you know is good to think about. Um, 
because yeah, the, it, it just depends on how you view the responsibility, like what the church's responsibility is. Um, and whether a warning is like what we see in, in uh, first Corinthians 11 is, is sufficient or we really take it on ourselves as church leadership to, uh, I guess it would be an attempt to assist the members in, in that discernment, I guess. Um, so yeah, that's yeah, interesting. It's an interesting, uh, a conversation. I, um, I'm not sure theologically if, if I would have an argument for the way that way that, uh, our tradition is versus, versus a more open approach, but, um, yeah. So I guess I could ask you about Pado communion because you wrote, I think you wrote a whole book on this, right? Um, at least collected a lot of essays on it. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and wrote an edit, you know, a bit of a, a summary for that, which, which I read part, part of. So, um, yeah, in terms of the Pado communion side, this kind of gets, this is kind of along the same lines, um, in terms of discernment, discerning the body, um, and not eating and drinking judgment. Um, how do how does the Reformed Church view pedo communion? I guess you could outline um, maybe some of the pedo communionists' uh, strongest arguments, I guess, and then and then how do we respond to those? Right. Well, I th- I think our starting point, if we're just looking at the Reformed Church, you know, going back to Geneva and Zurich, uh, then there there would be no confessional support for pedo communion, and there may be a lone proponent before the 20th century. So Calvin knows the position and he rejects it in just the the most severe terms. He says the proponents of it have, and I'm roughly quoting, not a particle of sound judgment. Uh, So that's good 16th century rhetoric for saying that's that's bold. (laughs) Not a good idea. Um, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism uh, restricts the Lord's Supper only to those who are of years and ability to examine themselves. So, so they're aware of the practice, and they expressly exclude it. Now, in the 20th century, there have been Reformed folk who have argued that if we're going to be faithful to our covenant theology, then we've got to let uh, the children of believers, infants, come to the table before they make any kind of profession of faith. And what they would argue is just as we administer baptism to a covenant child without any kind of profession of faith on their part beforehand, then by the same token, we owe them the Lord's Supper. Uh, so baptism and the Lord's Supper go hand in glove. And if we're going to deny them the one, then we have to deny them the other. If we grant them the one, we grant them the other. So it's a, it's a covenantal argument. I, I don't agree with that argument. I think there are reasons within our uh, covenant theology why we would grant baptism to the one and, and withhold the Lord's Supper from that person. But that's the argument. Right. Yeah. They, I mean, I, I guess you see this fairly commonly and, and or the discussion being had, and I think it's being had in our, in our circles as well um, here in, in Canada. Um, mm. But yeah, I guess most notably probably Douglas Wilson 
uh, made made a switch on this because he was a Baptist. He went from being a Baptist um, and not accepting paedo communion, I guess, to being um, going full swing in the other direction. Um, where now he, yeah, he he did what you were describing, where he accepts infant baptism and then therefore concluded that uh, paedo communion would also be, um, I guess, theologically sound or logical. Um, so why do why does this conversation come up? I mean, one of the things I think about would be Passover. Um, the, you know, equating the Passover and, and young, young people or children um, partaking in the Passover, it seems uh, in the old Testament. And then, uh, you know, basically making, equating that to the Lord's supper. Um, how do we view that as reformed Christians? Well, I, I think, we we recognize that you know, the Passover, which is the analog of the Lord's Supper under the Old Covenant, arguably younger children ate the Passover, though I'll, I'll just say as an aside, that is debated uh, among expositors. But I'm, let's just grant that young children did for the sake of argument. I don't think it follows that children, therefore, are entitled to come to the Lord's Supper, because we are, even though they're analogous ordinances, we're dealing with ordinances in different covenants, and we're given explicit instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 that, in my judgment, when properly interpreted, will preclude a a very young child from coming to the Lord's table. There has to be the, the capacity to examine oneself uh, there must be the a demonstrated uh, capacity to discern the Lord's body. And, of course, there are the warnings that come in connection with that, eating and drinking judgment unto oneself. Some of you have already died and so on. So what would account for that? Well, I think the Passover is an ordinance pointing to the death of Christ in the shadows But the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the accomplished death of Christ. And I think for that reason, because of how closely tied the Lord's Supper is to the finished work of Christ and his death, then the scripture, we can understand why it would do this, is going to put in place uh, requirements that would not have been in place for the Passover, because of that advance. Uh, It's the principle to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, We're just that farther along in redemptive history. The the, uh, Lord's Supper, rather, is going to carry a depth of meaning and significance that the Passover just couldn't bear because it was in the shadows. And so, given that, God is going to require more of the recipient, expect more of the recipient, than he did under the Passover. Hmm. Yeah, is this a little bit, is there a little bit of the Roman Catholic thinking in the way uh, a paedo-communionist would, would would think about Lord's Supper? Because it, it just, it occurs to me that if you think about Lord's Supper more in terms of, you know, you almost need this for your salvation, um, it's hard to exclude children because they're part of the covenant. Um, so is that, 
I mean, I guess it's hard to say, but is that kind of the danger that, that that's, um, you know, you want, you want believers, you want all the covenant people to, to join in the Lord's supper. But, um, is it something of that, like feeling that it's a requirement that pushes people to accept this? Well, I think, you know, taking pedicommunion arguments at face value, I think a couple of things are 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 going to follow that are worrisome. One is that you really do have to change your understanding of the Lord's Supper. So if if the question is put to a pedicommunion proponent, look, you're saying that a, a two-year-old child can take the Lord's Supper. What what conceivable benefit can they receive? Well, what happens, you have, in, in my judgment, is a revisionist exegesis of 1 Corinthians 11, where discerning the body is not understanding what's going on in the Lord's Supper with respect to the person and work of Christ, but it's um, being able to uh, uphold and appreciate the unity of the church as body of Christ. Well, seen in that light, the Lord's Supper would then be something within the capacity of a very little child. They're just preserving unity. They're not promoting disunity. The problem is it takes the Lord's Supper from something that is fundamentally vertical, and it makes it fundamentally horizontal. And I think you end up with a very different understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. I'm not saying they're denying the other element, but I think uh, you, <clears throat> you end up with a very different understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I, I do th- another worrisome uh, trend is that it, it does put, it seems, an unwholesome insistence on the Lord's Supper as something that is, um, if not necessary, then something that every covenant member really, really needs to partake of. And, you know, you couple that with the way many paedocommunionists look at baptism, and that's a whole other discussion. But in, in my judgment, there's even more of a concerning uh, doctrine of baptism at work within many paedocommunion circles. Mm. And I, I think there is, not by intent, but by consequence, there's a diminishment of the preached word, of the necessity of the new birth, of conversion, of repentance and saving faith as being at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. I think that gets diminished, and you end up with a piety that's much more sacramental. And I think that's pulling us away from the uh, reformed wing of the Reformation rather than more closely into it. I just don't think that's where our covenant theology leads us at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. It's uh, yeah. It's not something that uh, I think most people have put a lot of thought into and it. It's something that it's hard to argue if you don't, if you don't think about. So um, yeah, the only other thought that comes to mind um in terms of you know i guess a pro uh pedo communion stance would be um the argument that um baptism 
um, if we look at baptism versus circumcision and we look at the Lord's Supper versus um, the Passover, baptism is, has become more inclusive. And I mean, the world loves that word now. So that's uh, it's one of those things that we see expanding to uh, expanding to females. So the it almost seems that the new the new covenant has become more inclusive. And then with um, the Lord's Supper, there's a warning there and and it's become more inclusive or it's it's become a narrower, you know, say group of people who are participating. Um, and I don't know if that's where like a guy like Douglas Wilson would, you know, his mind would stop and wouldn't go <laughs> wouldn't go further than that into his theology. Um, basically, like. How do we. Yeah, how do we kind of combat that that inclination to think that new must be more inclusive? Right. Well, you know, I think there is a a, a truth there, and that is the new covenant is certainly uh, expansive in nature relative to the old. I mean, that's uh, just writ large across the New Testament. And there's no question that informs the sacrament of baptism. But I don't think it follows that the Lord's Supper necessarily reflects that inclusivity. Mm. I'd say in the first place, 1 Corinthians 11 is going to dictate otherwise. It's going to point in the other direction. And then the point we were discussing just a bit earlier, we've got to take into account progress in redemptive history, going from old to new. It's not just breadth, it's also depth. And the Lord's Supper reflects that depth that we've achieved in the new covenant. And so God has attached a requirement for maturity mm. to that ordinance that he did not attach to the uh, ordinance of the Passover under the old covenant. So I think that in, that can be a one-sided um, understanding of the new covenant, uh, not that it's untrue, it's just it's incomplete. The new right. covenant gives us both breadth and depth, and each sacrament has to be taken on its own terms. I, I don't think that uh, breadth becomes some kind of criterion that's going to dictate how we do everything within the new covenant. And this, this would be right. a clear example. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's just our sinful inclination to... Uh decide how things how things are before we really read into them so read read scripture and and you know, you know and logical want to be fair to pay to communion brothers i mean i understand the the impulse that's taking them where they go uh, i just think they're following the wrong road at that point and that there there are other considerations given us in scripture that uh, are being bypassed in pursuing the course that they follow. Right. Okay. So setting, so setting that aside, I guess this is, this is where we talk about discerning the body and, and um, I guess that people discuss the age thing. Um, so there's, there's kind of two different uh, sides to this. So like if you are paedo communist, you would, you would accept that even though a child cannot discern or cannot uh, self-examine, they would still be admitted. Um, and that's that's kind of that stance. But there's also um, there's also discussion around what that discerning means and then what kind of age 
range are we talking about for you know that um that bar to be met i guess so what kind of like how can we think about that what what does discerning i mean you've touched on it already what discerning means um but what is that self-examination um how should we think about when you know a child or or a young adults ready for um how do we know that they're ready for that right well a few thoughts i think in the first place um you know this is going to be something that's left to the elders because they admit or exclude from the table um obviously a person has to come forward of their own volition but it's it's the elders the not not the father or mother not the individual himself or herself it, it's going to be the elders that admit or exclude so how do they do that well by examination and the the language that i mentioned from the westminster larger catechism i think is helpful there of years and ability to examine themselves so they have the maturity and the capacity to fulfill the requirements set forth in 1 Corinthians 11 An, another um well attested phrase at least in presbyterian books of order is when a person arrives at the years of discretion uh not we don't use the phrase age of accountability uh, because we believe everybody's accountable from conception. So that that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about arriving at a level of maturity. And <clears throat> both the Dutch Reformed and uh, Reformed uh, Presbyterian traditions have been very careful not to set an age before which you may not come, after which you must come. Hmm. For the simple reason, and I think we all know this from experience. We know 16-year-olds who are more mature than some 30-year-olds. You know, maturity is a a person-to-person -person matter. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's relative. There are certain standards or criteria, but I, I think a session who, who knows the family, who knows this young person, can come to a good sense whether they have the intellectual emotional spiritual maturity to take the step of coming to the lord's supper to assume that responsibility uh, to himself so i think all of these things factor in to that judgment but the scripture doesn't give us a checklist it doesn't give us a cutoff age or a if you reach this age like your driver's license you can go down and get your license and start driving that's just not how the the lord's supper works right yeah i heard one um one yeah someone giving a speech basically on this or a lecture um talk about the uh the israelites before they entered the uh the promised land when they're in the desert the it speaks of um god says basically like i'm probably going to botch the actual quote but um basically like if if you you were too young to almost the same idea discern um what was going on um then then you're you're then you're okay to enter the promised land but then if you're old enough to understand what's happening then, then those Israelites had to die in the wilderness. And that cutoff was 20, which is interesting. Um, not to say that that's like, we should put an age on it. Um, but a lot of times 
again with with this inclusive inclusive mindset um that i think is probably creeping into the church a little bit um we want to say well what about 12 what about 10 what about eight and we like to work it back um and yeah i think that's why so what you said like just really understanding what um what this is what this it's not an aid what this requirement is and and taking it on a person-to-person basis is probably very important. That's right. And, you, you know, typically in, in the experience of Reformed and Presbyterian churches, when, when young people get into their, usually their mid to late teens, you know, that tends to be when they exhibit the readiness to come forward. But, you know, famously, Jonathan Edwards interviewed and admitted Phoebe Bartlett to the Lord's table when she was five years old. Now, that's extraordinary, not only that a five-year-old would be admitted, but that a five-year-old would sustain the scrutinizing examination of Jonathan Edwards, who was no slouch in ensuring that someone was ready to come to the Lord's table. So that's an extraordinary examiner and an extraordinarily extraordinary young lady. Uh, that's not the norm, but it just goes to show we don't have a set age, and yep. and rightly so. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, so a couple other considerations that I think are are kind of uh, being being spoken about in our in our uh, Dutch Reformed circles. Um, one would be the ongoing discussion around how do we celebrate the actual. You know, do we, you know, go to the front of the church? Do we sit? Do we go to a table altogether? Drink from one cup, multiple cups? Um, you know, talk about COVID, but I mean, like this, <laughs> there's a lot of pragmatic, um, practical discussion around what <clears throat> what uh, happens during Lord's Supper. Um, yeah, is there is there some guidance that you would that you would say is is helpful in that discussion? Um, and then. The reason why I ask is, I mean, obviously every congregation has to has to come up with what they're going to do and and decide. But um, how how pragmatic should our thinking be um, versus how um, how should we how much should we set that aside for a theological argument in this discussion? Yeah. So, so I mean, a few thoughts. Um... You know, there's a little article that B.B. Warfield wrote, and it's entitled something like The Posture of Recipients at the Lord's Supper. It's a church historical study, and basically his conclusion is, and this is an exaggeration, if, if you can conceive of a way, sitting, standing, walking, what have you, to receive the elements, the church has done it at some point. And I think part of what he's saying is that this is simply not something the Scripture has legislated. In fact, the the New Testament in particular is just disinterested in legislating a lot of these ceremonial matters, because that's what they are. They're ceremonial matters with any kind of precision. I think it's left to the liberty of churches to settle. So I think there it's it's left to the judgment of the elders. What's going to promote good order? What's going to promote the um, uh, honoring of biblical standards in observing the Lord's Supper? Uh, so, so, for instance, in 
um, many Presbyterian traditions, it, it is the elders who distribute the elements to communicants. And part of the rationale for that is that the elders are tasked with discipline in the church. If someone partakes who ought not, then only an elder is going to know that if that person's under discipline, and then the elders can address it in due time. So I, I think we have to be very careful not to go beyond what Scripture has given us. I think we respect the tradition of which we're part. Um, I think we have to be careful about um, binding conscience. I think we need to keep into view what's going to promote order and piety and good discipline in the church. And that's not going to look the same in every church, in every setting, in every age and place. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. So there is. So what I'm hearing is there, 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 there is room for uh, a practical uh, consideration there. Because um, yeah, one thing that often gets cons- uh, gets discussed is um, yeah. Recently, we we actually well we switched to frequency. We'll talk about frequency in a minute, but. Um, we we also switched the way um, we had been doing. So in Calgary here, in our Canary Reform Church, we had been going to the front to a table, uh, to a well, not even a table. I guess we all sat together, um, and then we did. We had three or four tables um, throughout the service, um, and we switched to doing it in the pew, and we all walk up to the front and receive the elements from the elders. Um, different than other churches I've been in, even in our Canadian Reform circle. So it's not like it's even a denominational thing. Um, but yeah, the considerations that you hear people talk about are, well, how long did the service go? Um, my kids are in the nursery. They're getting annoyed. You know, that's a that's a terrible mm-hmm. thing for the people dealing with the nursery kids. Um, just like very practical things like that. And I my like personally, I have a hesitancy to engage on that kind of uh, uh, argument because I I think, well, we should just first say, like, what does scripture say about this? And we should just make concessions practically for um you know exercising or partaking in the lord's supper the the best way that we can for our spiritual lives um but yeah what i'm hearing is is probably there is a place for pragmatic discussion in terms of like well what does make sense in our context um especially when it starts these when these things start to hinder that spiritual discussion yeah, absolutely. And and something just along the lines of what you're describing, if practice A means observing the Lord's Supper takes 10 minutes and practice B means observing the Lord's Supper takes 20 minutes, I don't think it's wrong for the church's leadership to say maybe we ought to look at practice A uh, because we think that it would be better and more profitable for our people spiritually. And it's going to help the nursery workers, and it's going to let the sermon go a little bit longer than it otherwise would. I I don't think it's at all wrong to take those into account. I think you have to take those sorts of things into account. When does it become... Um, yeah, I guess that's something for us to decide, but is there something that you will lose by only thinking in that way? Or... Or is that something that's, you know, still up for discussion? Yeah, I wouldn't say we only think that way. I mean, I think we we come into this, you know, asking the, the bigger questions 
that we were asking a few moments ago, right. what, what practice promotes good order, piety, discipline, but I don't think it's wrong to take into account we've got particular people sitting in front of us. They've got certain limitations. It's unwise to press them beyond their capacities. Um, we've got people who are serving us in, in the nursery. We have to be respectful of them. I'm not saying you lead with that, but right. I don't think yeah. it's wrong to factor that into your decision. Yeah, that's, well, that's wise. That's actually, I hadn't thought about it quite that way. So that's, uh, yeah, that's really helpful. Um, this kind of leads into the frequency discussion. So um, I'm not sure what the practice is in the Presbyterian church. Um, we we're kind of all over the map in our Canadian reformed church. Um, we, some, I guess, I think quarterly would be most common or the longest, I guess. Um, some churches have gone as far as weekly now, um, which is, which is interesting. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion in our, in our Dutch reform circles about this and how, how to think about this. So I thought I'd ask about like, what are some of the considerations there? And, and are the, is this also a more pragmatic discussion or are there good reasons to, to do Lord's Supper more often or less often, mm -hmm. I guess? Right. Well, I, I think to begin um, from, from your description and the, um, certain sectors of the Dutch Reformed tradition, and certainly in American Presbyterianism, um, there, there, we don't understand there to be a biblically prescribed frequency. And so Westminster Confession simply says the supper's to be observed frequently, and it doesn't go any in any more detail than that. Um, in the Scottish Church, uh, it, it was observed probably much more infrequently than most American churches today would be comfortable with. Uh, of course, Calvin advocated unsuccessfully for weekly observance of the Lord's Supper. So I, I think coming into this, we just recognize that neither scripture nor our tradition lays down a, a particular requirement in terms of frequency. So I think you're, you have to ask questions along the lines of what are we trying to accomplish as the church in worship, and does frequent observance help that or does it hinder it? You know, one benefit of more frequent observance, whether quarterly or monthly or weekly, is that it is going to position the gospel at the front and center of the service in the sense that every sermon leads to the table. And so every sermon is going to be funneled in, in some way, shape, or form to uh, the, the cross of Christ. And that's a very powerful thing. Some of the um, downsides is that if you're not careful, and certainly church history has borne this out, the more frequently you do something, there's always a temptation for it to become rote, to become ritualistic, routine. And that means the more frequently you observe, the more you're going to have to work hard to keep that from happening. And you also have to recognize, I mean, unless you have that rare congregation that can sit attentively for two hours, um, if you observe the Lord's Supper with any frequency, 
uh, you're going to have to shorten something else in the service. And usually that means the sermon. And I think you want to be careful about diminishing over time the content of the preached word. Um, we don't want to do anything that's going to let the table overshadow the pulpit. The pulpit does need to remain central in our worship. So, thinking, you know, and you also want to take into account where you are. You know, if you have, if you're in a heavily Roman Catholic area, if, if you have a large contingent of your congregation are former Roman Catholics, I don't think it's wrong to take that into account pastorally as you judge how frequently to observe the Lord's Supper so that you don't end up um, communicating what you don't intend to communicate or press people uh, beyond what they can be pressed. All of those, I think, are legitimate considerations. And again, I think can yield uh, entirely legitimate and different um, outcomes in different settings uh, in different places. Yeah, well, wow, that's a, yeah, that's a good, <laughs> I think that captures it. I mean, I don't know if I have a, any follow-ups on that. It's, it's something that we think about, but I don't, I don't think there's yeah necessarily a right or wrong way. Um, there's definitely not, it doesn't seem like a, con, uh, instruction from scripture and, and then rightfully so not in our confessions. Um, yeah, there, the only argument I, I would say like gets made more often is that the early church seems to have done it more often um but again i mean i think you touched on like that's not necessarily a requirement um and there's a lot of special things about the early church that you know we probably don't do and maybe shouldn't so um one thing that kind of ties into this which is kind of the last question i had prepared mm -hmm. which this has been good i got lots of my questions answered so um in the dutch reform circles i guess we've kind of um yeah, this is kind of in my thinking about the Eastern Orthodox Church and, and, and traditions like that, who place a lot of emphasis on symbolism. Um, in our Dutch Reformed circles, we we place a lot more emphasis on knowledge and less on like feelings in our in our tradition. So like, yeah, would be we would argue more along the lines of like, uh, what did a psalm or hymn say in it, as opposed to how did that make you feel. In, you know, when you sang it, did that make you feel, uh, you know, a certain way? And so we kind of apply that across the board in our worship. Um, and then also to Lord's Supper, it seems like in at least growing up in the church in this tradition. Um, is there is there some wisdom that you could do you could share in in terms of that? Like how obviously that Lord's Supper is meant to strengthen us. Um, is meant to be a sign and seal, but to um, encourage our faith. Is there uh, some implied message there that it should make you feel a certain way, um, or is it the is the knowledge really what is important when it comes to understanding the Lord's Supper? Yeah. Well, I think first coming into this, it, it it's certainly right to to recognize where we are and where we're susceptible of going. So we we live in a culture that is unbelievably emotive and just puts stock in feelings in a way that's just corrupting and destructive. And I think we also recognize across church history back in 
into the Old Testament, the susceptibility to idolatry, uh, turning worship from the unseen God to the seen things that are made. And in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, God comes to his people through the ear, not the eye. He speaks to us in his word. And so we, we have to be careful against anything that would take us away from that. But having said all that, I think we don't want to be wiser than God. And looking at the covenants that God has given us across history, one consistent pattern is a sign that he attaches to each covenant to depict the promises that he's given us. And a, a fine Dutch theologian, Herman Witsius, in his Economy of God and the Covenants, brings this out beautifully. And what that reminds us is that we're not bare souls, we're embodied people. And God recognizes that. And covenant signs are these tangible representations of intangible promise. And it's God coming down to us and communicating with us in a way that we can understand, in a way that reflects who we are. And if God has done that, that's something we need. So I don't think we ought to be dismissive of the Lord's Supper or any other covenant sign, just as we don't ever want to uh, detach it from the promise, the word to which it's attached. At the same time, we don't want to think that we can get by without it if God has given it to us for our help and growth. So I think we've got to be careful of either or here, and we need to recognize what is it that God is doing for us? Why is he doing it? And then embracing that as as part of the way our maker, our redeemer has given us to grow. Right. Yeah, that's helpful. Well, yeah, I think I'm out of questions. I mean, I, I've thought about this quite a bit and, um, yeah, I appreciate you, uh, you giving us some wisdom. Um, it's, uh, it's something that, yeah, I, again, we don't, I don't think we always think about and something that I think is important to, to think about. So is there anything else that, uh, you can think of around Lord's supper that's, you know, important for us to consider or is that pretty the well covered? Only, the only thing I would just leave with your listeners, and I'm I'm sure that there are, I know that there are many individual examples of this across the centuries, but one of the things that, that uh, Puritan, Dutch Reformed, American Presbyterian, Scottish Presbyterian pastors did to help their congregations is to produce sacramental catechisms, to produce helps, to equip their people, to ready their people to come to the Lord's table. And one that's readily available, it's in the Westminster Larger Catechism. We have questions guiding us, how do we prepare for the Lord's Supper? What do we do during the Lord's Supper? And then what do we do after the Lord's Supper? And if you you haven't read those, read them. They're They're just gold. And they're wonderful outlines to help you come to the Lord's Supper and be postured to benefit from it uh, more than perhaps you were before. Yeah, that's a that's a good that's a good thing to add. Actually, I I actually haven't read that, so 
um, I'll, I'll be sure to do that too. Um, is there any other material that you would recommend on Lord's Supper that, uh, other than all your books, I mean, you could pitch your books too. <laughs> well, again, I think the, uh, the confessional standards of both the three forms of unity and the Westminster standards are a great place to start. These are confessional documents. So they reflect the consensus of the church. They're written for the church. They're designed to summarize the teaching of scripture uh, in a way to help believers believe and obey the things God has given us in his word. So um, that's that's a great place to start. And if if you never leave there, you could do worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, appreciate appreciate your time. Appreciate you uh, shedding some light on this for us and our listeners. And hopefully everyone found that informative and inspiring and encourage people to talk about this um, in their in their church. I know it's uh, not something that uh, everyone engages on all the time, um, but I think, yeah, there's there's always things to discuss and, and it's good to know where you, you kind of stand on some of these even more practical issues. So appreciate your time again. Thank you, Dr. Waters. Um, and until next time, keep having real talk. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Real Talk. We really appreciate you taking the time to listen or watch the show. If you want to send us your feedback, and we'd love to hear it, please email us at reformedrealtalk at gmail.com. If you want to find us online or social media, we've got a lot of great content there. Just search Reformed Real Talk and we should come right up. This show is created and produced by myself, Lucas Holtfluer, and Tyler Vanderwood. And our wonderful podcast manager who does all the editing is Mariah Tamiga. So we're really thankful for her contribution to the show as well. That's all for now, folks. Thanks for watching or listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye-bye.